Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoans, and children with unfortunate names. Prepare yourselves to receive your 54th Weird Dose of X. As always, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science podcast family. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting from the state-of-the-art Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me today is absolutely no one. Ruben having abandoned me, having abandoned us, to go spend a holiday weekend with his family or some nonsense. Well, not me. I'm still here in my basement. I... I, I mean, in the state of the art, wrong turn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And today, I will be telling you all about, possibly too much about, one single book, and that book is X hyphen Men colon Before the Call M dash Heralds of Apocalypse, written by Al Ewing, art by Luca Pizzari, Stefano Landini, and Raphael Pimento, colors by CC or possibly Chechi De La Cruz, letters and production by Travis Lanham, and finally, design by. Anyone want to guess? I know I'm the only one in the whole world consumed by the drama of the design by credits of the X titles, but I just find it fascinating. So to back up, Before the Fall Sons of X, that design was by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. Before the Fall Mutant First Strike, that design was by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, for Heralds of Apocalypse, the design is by Tom Muller, all by himself. And what that means, I do not know, yet I am fascinated by it. Now, what even is this book? Well, it's it's not a story meant to stand on its own. You can't just hand this book to a noob and say, here's an X-Men story, read this. They will have no idea what's going on. This book needs to be read with a good working knowledge of both the current X-Men Red situation and also with a pretty darn good memory of the events of the Ten of Swords event, what we on this podcast call the X of Ten events for inside joke reasons I mostly forget. Now, in particular, to really appreciate this story, you should have a complete memory and understanding of X-Men numbers 12, 13, and 14, those being issues from the Hickman run, not the current Jerry Duggan volume. The most important scene in this book, really what this book is all about, is a direct word-for-word retelling of a scene in that X-Men number 13, but with one more secret revealed. So, if nothing else, Before or after you read Before the Fall, Heralds of Apocalypse, I strongly suggest going and reading Hickman's X-Men number 13, published way, way back in October of the year 2020. Okay, you back with me now? Let's go. This book has a fairly complicated structure with scenes and pages jumping back and forth in time. All of it is set in the quote-unquote past relative to, say, X-Men Red number 12, the most recent issue of that series, but some of it is in the distant past, as in a thousand or so years ago and some of it is in the quite recent past. In talking about it, I'm mostly going to rearrange things into in-universe chronological order, except for the one flashback where the whole point is for Apocalypse to learn something now they didn't know back then. Now that means that we're starting on page 8 of my digital edition for a scene that takes place all the way back in what the narration box says is Okara in a long time past. Here we join Apocalypse immediately after the birth of his fourth child, or at least his fourth child by Genesis. This is the occasion on which Iska gifts her big blue brother-in-law the sword called Scarab, the one that Apocalypse would go on to use in X of Tens, the one that would be shattered and destroyed in the climactic duel between Apocalypse and Genesis. Here I'm going to pause for some sword talk. Iska mentions another great sword maker, Ingios, but says that Ingios is not as great a sword maker as his mother was, and that she, Ingios's mother, made a white sword, which we have to presume is the white sword, to commemorate Ingios' birth. Later on in this book, in a separate scene, 
we're told that a father was killed in the early part of the war against the Amenthi demons, and that his son, Blue, saw his mutant powers awake in that moment, becoming the character we would come to know as the White Sword. Putting that together, I think that Blue, aka the White Sword, is the son of Ingios, and that his sword, Purity, currently in the possession of John Ironfire on Mars, was created by the White Sword's grandmother. I don't know if any of that matters, but I suspect that this is all an elaborate joke about the movie The Princess Bride, of all things. Now, as I'm sure you recall, in that movie, Inigo Montoya is driven to get revenge for the death of his father, who was a great sword maker. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. We, we've all heard that a million times. Now, Ingios, Inigo, sword maker fathers, revenge, that can't all be a coincidence, right? It's all a long way to go for a joke, but as I am in rather a glass house here on that score, I'm not throwing any stones at Al Ewing for jokes that go a long way. Now, the rest of the scene is mostly about setting up the relationship between Genesis and Apocalypse. Ewing wants us to see them as representing a dichotomy, with Apocalypse speaking in favor of peace, and Genesis pointing out that even if, hey, we happen to be at peace for this moment, war is, quote, not forgotten in the past, waiting in the future, waiting to strike. Genesis is the one who names their children, pestilence, war, famine, and now death. So, to anyone out there not crazy about the name your parents gave you, take heart. It could have been so much worse. Imagine showing up for the first day of kindergarten with the name Pestilence. For the rest of the book, Ewing continues to elaborate on this dichotomy. War-loving Genesis versus peace-loving Apocalypse. I don't know that this entirely works, given what we know of Apocalypse's action and character both before this period, in his early life like in and around ancient Egypt, and afterwards, when he does all that awful stuff with Exodus and Mr. Sinister and fighting the X-Men and, and all that bit. Peace-loving Apocalypse is a tough, tough sell, and uh, I can't say that Ewing exactly pulls it off. Maybe he could say that everything that Apocalypse is and does after leaving Krakoa for the first time is in reaction to what happened here in the Amenthi Demon War, but even that wouldn't explain who he was before coming to Okara. But even that wouldn't explain who he was before coming to Okara. Uh, which he was already kind of a jerk before that, if you read those stories. Retcons are hard, especially for characters with as deep and wide a history as Apocalypse, who's already been in over 200 issues of comic books, so his character is kind of set in stone. In the rest of this scene, we learn that Genesis has been having prophetic dreams that foresee the coming war with Annihilation, and of the Twilight Sword that will split their beloved island in twain. As the scene ends, we learn that Annihilation and the Menti Demons attacked immediately following the birth of the baby death, which I don't think we knew before. Now, continuing chronologically, the next scene to talk about starts on page 24, runs through page 28. This happens much later, a thousand years later, taking place after X of Tens, after Saturnine has transmorphed Annihilation from a mask into a staff, and after Genesis and Apocalypse have returned to Amenth, where they have just defeated the last remaining holdouts of the Amenthi Summoners. One of the surrendering summoners let slip, possibly intentionally to sow discord among his conquerors, that Tarn the Uncaring is dead. We remember him from uh, Hellions, and we know that Tarn was killed by Magneto in a fight for a seat on the Great Ring. But this is news to Genesis. Further news comes out about Arako moving to Mars, and we learn that Apocalypse has been secretly keeping taps on Arako using magic but he hasn't shared any intelligence about this with his wife and his family. By kind of a coincidental coincidence, this is the fateful moment that the image of Mariana Stern of Kavanakaba appears, 
They give Genesis the final bit of news to set her on a new path. Stern tells Genesis what Oranos has done, slaughtering so many Iraqi in the, uh, the Judgment Day event. This is the message that makes Genesis decide that something drastic has to be done. The message that sends her off to fight the White Sword, to win his forces over to further strengthen her side, as we saw in X-Men Red number 12, with only John Ironfire escaping her clutches, you know, with that magic sword. And that's the end of this scene. Now, we finally get to jump to the start of this comic, still in a month, but shortly after Genesis has gone and defeated the White Sword. So we're very close to the quote-unquote present. We begin with a chat between Apocalypse and a small, weak-looking Amenthi demon who is not given a name, but who seems like he might possibly be important going forward. First, we learn more about Apocalypse's new name, that Krakoanized letter A. He tells the little demon that this letter is a word, a word in an ancient language, a word meaning revelation. Now, this shouldn't be too surprising to any uh, listener or reader who has gone to Sunday school, because we remember the last book of the Christian Bible, a book that has two names. Sometimes it's called Revelation, and sometimes called the Apocalypse. So having those two names refer to the same thing is really old hat. And of course, the first book of the Bible is of you know, Genesis, so that symbolism, Apocalypse, Genesis, Revelation, not all that deep or abstruse. Now, this little demon wants to know the nature of strength and of survival. Now, Apocalypse, or A, or Revelation, or Ensabiner, or whatever we're supposed to call him now, is of course all about survival of the fittest. But now he's starting to think that equating strength with survival is true, but inadequate. He says to the demon, it is not enough only to be there. It is not enough only to be strong. The sassy little demon then says, thanks for nothing, and is seemingly killed to death by a very pointy batarang thrown by Genesis. Genesis wants something. She knows that Apocalypse will not join her on her new mission to, re- to redeem the people of Arako, a people she sees as having lost their true path. But she wants Apocalypse to be her means of getting there, of opening the way. He says he's not so interested in doing that. Genesis has reforged the shattered family sword, Scarab, hey, more sword talk, and she tosses him half of it so that she might try to persuade him through the gentle art of marital swordplay. When this fight-slash-discussion picks up again on page 14, Genesis reminds Apocalypse of a certain incident that took place during the War with Annihilation, after the Twilight Sword had split the island in two, but before Genesis and the Arako half of the island went through the portal into Otherworld to take the fight to Amenth. This is the scene that comes right out of Hickman's X-Men number 13. Annihilation asks for a parlay with Genesis. All dialogue here is straight out of X-Men number 13, up until the point where Genesis takes hold of the Annihilation helm, and they have a private chat inside Genesis's mind. That's the new bit. What we learn now is that Annihilation offers Genesis peace. It offers to end the war, to seal the rift between the, the two islands, to make those two islands one again. Annihilation says that all Genesis has to do is ask. Now, that kind of reminds me of uh, Mother Righteous asking to be thanked, but I'm not sure that resonance is intentional. Could be a coincidence. I'm not exactly sure why Genesis refuses here. And, and listeners, if you think you understand better, please write in and let me know. But I think that the upshot is that Genesis doesn't really want peace. It's, it's not in her nature. Or else maybe she just can't stand to give up on trying to get revenge for everything that Annihilation has done and taken from her already. Maybe a little bit of both. Again, let me know if you think there's a a real solid answer here, because I don't see one. When we leave this flashback, which, remember, is a story Genesis is telling to her husband as they battle, Apocalypse is aghast that Genesis turned her back on the possibility of peace. 
But Genesis says, I was right to, because we, we being the mutants, I suppose, were not made for peace, which again argues that it's just, she is not about peace, she's about war. This is the moment that Genesis wins her battle with Apocalypse by stabbing him through twice with her swords. Apocalypse, Apocalypse insists that he's not truly beaten, just a flesh wound, but then he gives up anyway, saying, I yield on my own terms. He says he's been persuaded. Remember, what Genesis wants of him here is for Apocalypse to open the way for her to set off on her quest. So Apocalypse takes out three seeds. He says that these seeds have been infused with millennia of mutant magic. One he's going to keep, one he gives to Genesis, and the third he plants in his own very recently spilled blood. He says that these particular seeds need to grow in blood, which, I mean, is that symbolism or is that too obvious for symbolism? The seed thus planted in the blood grows into an Okara gate, the one that we saw Genesis step through at the very end of X-Men Red number 12. Genesis says that while, yeah, he's been persuaded to help Genesis, his reasons for helping her get to Arako aren't the same as her reasons for wanting to go to Arako. Now this, I'm pretty certain, is an intentional resonance. This sounds a whole lot like the end of, once again, X-Men Red number 12. This is, you should really call this X-Men Red number 13 or 12 and a half. But at the end of that issue number 12, both Genesis and Mariana Stern of Kavanakaba, they both want war between Arako and Earth, but for different reasons. We know why Genesis wants to go back. She wants to teach the Iraqi people what she thinks they should be. She thinks they've lost their way without her guidance. But I don't think we know yet what Apocalypse's motives are here. Now, this issue is almost done, which is good because I'm almost out of voice. But we have one more short exchange. Genesis has stepped through the gate and onto Mars. Once she's safely gone, that sassy little blue demon, the one we thought was dead, the one with the very pointy batarang still stuck in his head, well, it speaks up and it, it stands up. It seems that it doesn't keep much of its brain in its head area, so the batarang thing isn't that big a deal. Apocalypse congratulates the demon, who still doesn't have a name. Anyway, he congratulates the demon on surviving and invites it to tag along. To where? Well, Apocalypse says that he has his, quote, own path to walk, his own forces to gather, and that he and his wife will cross paths again on the battlefields of Arako, where, quote, my love will test me once more. So there it is. This is very clearly the road to that Genesis war we've heard of, the one that appeared in one of Destiny's visions before Judgment Day. So I think this is going to be the central plot going forward in X-Men Red once Fall of X kicks in. Genesis versus Apocalypse, the rematch, the grudge match. So what do I think of this issue? Last week I said that Ultimate Invasion number one was a, a very Hickman book, and similarly, Heralds of Apocalypse is a very Al Ewing book. This book is deep into the weeds of continuity for good and for ill. Your patience for it will really depend on just how happy you are to dig back into the gory details of X of Tens. How about the character of Apocalypse? Ewing works really, really hard here to try to make me believe in this peace-loving Apocalypse to be contrasted with his, his war-loving wife. But like I said earlier, I, I just don't think you can make that work. And I also would really like to see more of the relationship between Genesis and Apocalypse. We've never really seen them happy together for more than just a panel with, you know, some mythic, you know, narration going on above it. We don't see how they get along with each other. If they're supposed to be this great romantic couple going through the centuries, I'd like to see that on panel, and we haven't yet. If we did, that would make this upcoming, what I presume is a fight between them, mean so much more. As of now, as far as I can tell, they've always been opposed to each other, so seeing them fight isn't that big a deal. Now, this issue does tell us why and how Genesis gets to Mars in X-Men Red number 12, 
And it does answer that big question I had after reading that issue, the one I, I brought up in the podcast, namely, where is Apocalypse in all of this? And what is he doing related to whatever Genesis is doing? Now we know. Did we need 30 plus densely written pages jumping back and forth in time to get there? Probably not. Uh, other good things. The little blue demon character seems like it could wind up a, a fun sidekick. That's a classic trope, you know, big strong guy with a little funny sidekick. It's straight out of a Disney movie. Uh, the art by three artists is top notch. I presume that the different artists worked on different scenes at different time periods, but it all fits together, you know, pretty much seamlessly. Uh, up until I started writing these notes, I entirely forgot there were multiple artists, so I, I guess they worked well together. The fight scenes are dynamic and the characters look great. Uh, Genesis, who I complained in some other books, doesn't look so intimidating. Here she looks a little more intimidating and while still keeping her, you know, young woman kind of a, a feel to her. She doesn't seem like a, a physical monster. It, it, it's a, a nice balance. There are a couple of really nice panels of Apocalypse using his immune ability to fully control his own structure on an atomic level. There's a danger of making Apocalypse look like a, a knockoff of Plastic Man or Reed Richards or Kamala Khan, R.I.P. Uh, but the art here makes him look fittingly creepier than any of those other stretchy characters. There's a bit that takes place in the initial Amenthi attack on Okara that shows Apocalypse having formed a protective cage in his abdomen to hold his children and keep them safe while he fights. Now that's both you know, creepy and shows his you know, fatherly abilities and, and goals and desires, which is really cool, and also not something Reed Richards would ever do. Giving a book like this a numerical score is difficult. I, I often don't like giving any books numerical scores, but this one particularly. Uh, I've often said, though, that what I really want out of an X-Men book is for it to make me keep thinking about it after I close the covers, right? Uh, a book that is just a fun romp, but I never think of again. Maybe not so great, but something that makes me go, hey, how does that work? What what are those characters going to do? The one that lives on in my mind afterwards, I think that's what I want out of, out of the X-Men. And on that score, X-Men colon before the fall M-Heralds of Apocalypse clearly succeeds. I, I spent, you know, embarrassingly long doing the research for this podcast and, you know, has some dreams about it, which is kind of creepy. I know. Talk too much sometimes. But given that, I got to give it a pretty positive score. But again, I think not fully selling this character turn for Apocalypse pulls it back a little bit. So overall, after all that blabbing, I'm going to give it a 7.8 with the proviso that some of you listeners including but not limited to the very person editing this audio file, hi Jim, would just really not enjoy reading this book. It's a very particular thing for people who like or at least can tolerate Al Ewing doing a continuity deep dive. Well, so that's our show. Next week, Ruben should be back from his adventures and we will be talking about two books, both of which I'm pretty excited for. These are X-Men number 24, which shows on the cover Pogger Pog. I guess Pogger Pog is back in Pogger Pog Pog form. Weird to see another X of Ten's character brought back right after this past issue, but you know, he was a fun guy. He was the the crocodile looking dude where it turned out that the sword was the suit and there's a little guy inside the suit. Maybe you want to read up on him too, or, or maybe not. I don't think it matters all that much, but we'll find out more about that next week. And also our fourth and final before the fall one shot, this one being called Sinister Four, written by Kieran Gillen. So we get to check in, I suppose, with our Mr. Sinisters again. Until then, I hear the Annihilation microphone whispering to me, Read more X-Men comics.